0: Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and this is broadcast number 79, March 2nd, 2015. And we're going to be doing a broadcast with Dr. Ben Shaw. He is the associate professor. Maybe he'll correct me on that. i not sure. That's what the website says. But anyway, he's a professor of Old Testament here at the seminary, and we're going to be sitting down and talking with him about the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, that sounds really strange, um, subject matter, but uh, you'll understand more of its importance and why we're going to discuss it uh, in just a, a few minutes. Let me bring everybody up to speed on what we're doing here at the seminary as far as um, the podcast is concerned. As By now, everybody knows who listens to this, that we do have our own website. It's confessingourhope.com. There you can get all of the broadcasts, past broadcasts, uh, find out information about what's coming up on the program. Simply go to confessingourhope.com and utilize that website. There you can also get information on the faith and practice segment that we do every month with Dr. Piper. If you have a question, theological or practical, um, send it in, use the form there. If you do so and we use your question on the air um, you will be eligible for a ten dollar discount to the banner of truth so um, take advantage of that opportunity build your library whatever you need to do but send us your questions and we'll deal with them each month here on the program also we have the mobile app that has uh, got a lot of attention and been downloaded many many times very thankful for that so utilize that resource it has our chapel sermons our theology conferences and of course this podcast that you can listen to wherever you are in the world. So, um, you know, I just commented the other day that I really would like to live in the 1800s as long as I can bring my smartphone with me. Of course, it's an absurd comment because there would be no, no, no towers, no anything to deal with. But anyway, I like living in the technological era, as many of you know, but uh, there are times when I don't know if we're, it's better for it. Anyway, that's what's going on in the podcast. If you have questions, comments, criticisms, inquiries, you can write me confessing our hope at gpts.edu. Now, as I indicated, we'll be talking with Dr. Ben Shaw. He is um, the Old Testament professor here at Greenville Seminary. He's been here. I, I've lost track. It's been 25 years, 25 years. Wow, 25 years. Let's see, what was I doing? I was 23, almost 24. At the time. So anyway, he's been here for 25 years. He's been teaching um, Old Testament primarily, Hebrew, Old Testament intro, and a a host of other subjects, and he's also the academic dean of the seminary. So, Dr. Shaw, it's great to have you on. I know we've planned to do this a number of times, and mostly because of my own ineptness. We've postponed it and canceled it and shifted it around, but uh, anyway, we're going to do it today. We're going to talk about this subject, this the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Now, it's a class you you 've done in our advanced exegesis class and you 've chosen this particular subject matter, uh, maybe give the listeners kind of a uh, background or some kind of introductory um, statements about what 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 are we talking about well we 're
1: talking about how the New Testament makes use of the Old Testament obviously uh, the current discussion of it at least in evangelical circles probably goes back to the Late nineteen uh, seventies, with the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, uh, there were two volumes of essays that came out of that. Uh, uh, out of that council, uh, there was, of course, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and then there was a, a, a volume of essays dealing specifically with inerrancy, and then there was a, a volume of essays that dealt with what are the hermeneutical implications. Uh, of the doctrine of inerrancy and and a couple of the essays in that had to do with the New Testament's use of the old um, I think most Christians when they're uh, at least most evangelical Christians when they're uh, when the topic is mentioned they tend to think it's pretty straightforward mm. uh, they'll look at Matthew chapter 1 for example where uh, Matthew writes that um, uh, she will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will keep he save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And there, Matthew is citing Isaiah seven fourteen, and and it looks like, and I think, is a pretty straightforward case of Isaiah making a particular prediction. And then Matthew simply recording for our sake and, and drawing our attention to the fact that that prediction is fulfilled in Jesus. Um, but when you when you when you begin to look at the many other places where the New Testament cites the Old Testament, uh, a number of those places are not so clear. Uh, so, for example, later on in Matthew chapter two, we have the account of Herod. Uh, sending out the decree to slay all of those uh, boys two years old or under uh, in the region of Bethlehem, and we read in Matthew two seventeen, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. And you go back, and that's a quote from Jeremiah. Uh, you go back and you look at Jeremiah, and the quotation in Jeremiah seems to have to do with the people going into exile. And so you're thinking, well, what is Matthew doing here? What's And that that doesn't sound like his quotation of Isaiah back in chapter 1. And then at the very end of chapter 2, we have another example where it says uh, he, uh went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And the fact is there's not a single passage anywhere in the Old Testament or in the Apocrypha, for that matter, that says he shall be called a Nazarene. Well, obviously, uh, Matthew is applying it to uh, Jesus. But the question is, what does he mean, this fulfilled what the prophets say, when we can't find anything that the prophets might have said to that effect. And so um, if we if we believe in in an inerrant Bible and we do, there's good reason for that, uh, then these kinds of uh, passages, uh, Matthew 2:17 and, and the uh, end of Matthew 2, uh, they present a little bit of a problem of interpretation. How are we to understand what Matthew is doing here? Uh, so that's just kind of where the uh, uh where the issue springs from and uh over the last uh as i say that uh those two volumes came out in the early 1980s so about 30 35 years uh there's been a fair amount of publication uh on this issue and and particularly uh, a number of years ago the uh a volume, massive volume came out edited by GK Beale, who currently teaches at uh Uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and D.A. Carson, who's a research professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, came out in 2007, a volume titled Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. And as I say, it's uh, massive. It's about 1,200 pages. So uh, obviously the New Testament uses the Old Testament a lot, but there's a lot of discussion about how uh, precisely, the New Testament authors use the Old Testament, and what precisely they're doing with it.
0: And we're going to get your expertise answer exactly how that all works itself out at the end of this podcast. So stay tuned for that. That information. Well, I say that tongue in cheek because it is an issue, and and I guess what I'd like to ask you, Doctor Shaw, is, you know, I, I sat in on the advanced exegesis class for a few weeks, and 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 in for whatever, for personal reasons, I wasn't able to finish the class, Um, hope to take it again before I graduate. But why is this issue so important? Because, you know, when I was a kid growing up, you know, I'd see those quotations in Matthew and wherever else, and you just assume that they're being used in the same sense or same way that we interpret the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so contextually, it's just being... Applied that same way, and so why is this impor- why is this issue important? Were these two volumes that were written that you mentioned were they from a liberal background? Or are they trying to attack the authenticity of the Bible? That's inerrancy, or are they just doing honest scholarship?
1: No, they uh, they were written by those who were part of the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. So they're they're all in all of the authors in those two volumes are committed to the doctrine of inerrancy, uh, but the. Um, Well, there's a. I I want to go back to the Westminster Confession. I guess as a way of getting to this. In in Westminster Confession, Chapter One, Paragraph Nine, we read that the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself, and therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Now. one thing that the authors of the Confession are doing there with that little parenthetical uh, expression, which is not manifold, but one, they're criticizing the medieval Roman Catholic view that there are four senses uh, to any passage in Scripture. And they're asserting, no, any passage of Scripture only has one sense. It only has one meaning. And in the uh, development of hermeneutics that is the science or uh, philosophy of interpretation uh, after that time uh, one of the ways that our approach to the uh, to understanding the scriptures uh, has been characterized is as the grammatical historical interpretation and that means that we understand the uh, text uh, according to the grammar of the language and according to its historical context, uh, so that we uh, understand, for example, when the um, uh, when it refers to Abraham having camels, that that took place in a time when camels had had been domesticated, uh, or if uh, you know something is uh, said in the, in the Old Testament in the future tense, then it's looking forward to some future event. Uh, That would be a grammatical, historical understanding. But uh, if you look at several, I wouldn't say, well, just say several Old Testament passages that are made reference to in the New Testament. If you go back and look at those passages in their original setting, say in the prophet Hosea or in the prophet Isaiah or in one of the uh, historical books or the book of Psalms, uh, and you read it in its grammatical and historical context, it doesn't seem to be the case that the New Test- the way the New Testament authors use it uh, is really fair, if you will, to the either the grammar that it's somehow moving beyond the grammar uh and the and the history into some other realm if you will so for example uh we read again in Matthew 2 and this is one of the passages that gets uh, a great deal of discussion Matthew 2 verse 15 we read and uh Joseph and the child and his mother remained there, that is, in Egypt until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And uh, that's straight out of uh, Hosea chapter 11. Uh, and, but if you go back and you read Hosea in its uh, grammatical and historical context, uh, it seems to be referring to the deliverance of Israel uh, from Egypt in the past, even in Hosea's past. And so how does that then relate to to Jesus and his bring, his coming out of Egypt after the death of Herod? Now, uh, a person who's gotten a lot of notoriety in, in our circles in the last few years, uh, Peter Enns, who used to teach at Westminster in Philadelphia— uh, has said that clearly Matthew misuses this passage that uh that there's no way that the passage in Hosea means anything has anything to do uh with Jesus coming out of uh, uh of Egypt uh, and so Matthew simply misuses it and, and and that's a view that you'll find in in most uh, uh liberal universities most liberal divinity schools that uh you ask the folks in the Old Testament Department, well, what do you think of the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament?" and they say, "Well, the New Testament misuses the Old Testament and if you go to the New Testament Department of those same schools and say, "Well, what do you make of the way that the New Testament uses the Old Testament?" And they say, "Well, the New Testament misuses the old testament uh and and that's i I think a simplistic uh response it's it's a it's a uh, it's not a thoughtful response, for example, you know when uh, Jesus refers to Old Testament passages and applies them in particular ways, uh, you know the Pharisees didn't call him on his interpretation; uh, they they accept his uh, interpretation of these things, and so they understood what he was talking about. And so we can't simply say that the New Testament authors are misunderstanding or misusing the Old Testament. and And I think what what uh, what Mr. Hill was Indicating earlier is that we have to consider not just the grammatical element of the Old Testament text and not just the historical element of the Old Testament text, but we have to remember that the Old Testament is a theological text. And so there is a theological stratum, if you will, uh, to any text in the Old Testament uh, that is uh, there's not just a, a grammatical context, there's not just a historical context, but there's a theological context. And many times what's happening in the the way the New Testament makes use of the Old Testament is it's uh, building on the theological context of the the Old Testament passage. Uh, So, for example, with the Hosea 11, uh, uh, we go back to the Exodus itself, and we're told there that um, uh, God identifies Israel as his son – and the and we understand from many passages in the Old Testament that the Exodus, the original Exodus under Moses, was a type of a greater Exodus yet to come. And so, uh, what when Hosea says, "Out of Egypt I called my son," he says it in such a uh, in such a theological context as the reader is reminded of what God did in the. Uh, exodus under Moses, and is pointed to a greater exodus yet to come. And Matthew's telling us that this greater Exodus is embodied in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have then that theological element that we have to take into account, that I, I think many uh, uh, e- even sometimes evangelical uh, interpreters are hesitant to to see, that evangelical stratum uh, in the interpretation of the Old Testament.
0: Now, you, you mentioned the issue of misuse, and, and, and that caught my ear. Um, Peter Enns and others have, have said, well, Matthew's clearly misusing, or whoever in the New Testament is clearly misusing the Old Testament here, and, um, and I actually wrote the word down and I circled it. Um, why is that a problem? What does that? What problem does that create by making that drawing that conclusion? Yet you said it was simplistic, and it is. But what's the problem it ultimately drives? Well, the problem is it is it undermines our.
1: I uh, it undermines our belief in the Bible. Uh, it tells us that the Bible that the authors of the Bible aren't reliable. That the New Testament authors couldn't read and interpret the old testament reliably. And if they couldn't read and interpret the old testament reliably, well, uh, how do we know that what they say is true? Yeah, so where it appears
0: the Yeah, where it appears to be fine, we don't we can't even say that was right. Right.
1: Yeah, so that you know, in the in these if you will questionable passages, if we have no confidence that it's right there, uh, why should we have any uh, any confidence uh you know, we we all know people who are shall we say less than reliable uh in their telling us about their past and uh when we begin to to find out that what they're telling us about their past wasn't necessarily so we begin to distrust them on what they say on on other things that they say we find them not a reliable witness so you know the same kind of thing works in a court case Uh, the uh, prosecution brings in a witness and the defense attorney asks him some questions, and it begins to appear that this, this witness isn't a reliable witness. Uh, uh, and so, you know, if we say, well, the New Testament authors misuse the Old Testament, what we're saying is that they're not reliable. And if they're not reliable, then why are we relying on them? Why are we counting on the Bible?
0: Yeah, we should just chuck the whole thing, because nothing can be definitively ascertained. We all come. In, you mentioned the confession, and we and, and talked a little bit about that. And and you know, of course, here at Greenville Seminary, uh, we, you know, we have a presupposition that all Scripture is inspired by God, that it's breathed out by God, that the Holy Spirit superintended the activities of the writers. And so, is it true then if 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 ends and and his bunch? Um, who want to make those kinds of statements if they say that that matthew's misusing the old testament I mean, what does that say about the holy spirit's involvement in the inspiration of what he wrote well it, it would uh it would certainly call into question
1: uh you know is uh i don't know i don't pretend to know where ends would go with this uh, I, I mean he may argue that the bible's not inspired at all uh he might argue that uh uh, God is not being entirely truthful with us. Um, you know, I, I don't know where he would go, but but the implication, none, nonetheless, remains that if the New Testament authors can't be trusted in the way they treat the Old Testament, then can they be trusted at all?
0: Yep. And so we we assume, of course, here at this seminary, and and and, and I would suspect most of the listeners to this podcast believe the Bible is the Word of God. It's original autographs, and so when we have these problems, and I guess this kind of goes back to what you have been saying about interpretation, when we have these problems, these dilemmas that, we, that seem to be dilemmas or seem to be problems for us, uh, the burden is on us to resolve those problems with the presupposition and understanding that the Bible is the Word of God, it doesn't contradict itself, it's not being misused by the writers, and so the real question is how do we do that? You've already touched on this grammatical historical interpretation, but maybe what I'm asking you, Doctor Shaw, is you know, if you were speaking to a room of junior high students that mm-hmm. were especially uh, acute to these issues, they you know they came along and said, "Hey, you know, I was reading Matthew, and I can't, and I can't find any reference in the Old Testament to this statement that he makes. What do I do with this?" And maybe their faith has been somewhat shaken. What mm-hmm. would you say? Well, I I would say, well, let, let's, let's look at that particular passage. Yeah, let's it's, la- that. it's
1: the last verse of Matthew, chapter 2. It says, uh, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Well, the, um, it, uh, as I say, there's no place in the Old Testament that says, verbatim, he shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, and yet, we have to conclude that matthew is not making this up out of whole cloth he's obviously alluding to something in the old testament and and again you have to remember matthew's one of the apostles he's one of those who in the days after the resurrection that jesus instructed yet you, know, you go to the end of luke luke chapter 24 verses 44 to 47 and Jesus opened the Old Testament to them and showed them how he was in the, the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the writings. Uh, and so uh, we, we have to uh, take it for granted that Matthew is alluding to something that may not be said in one particular place, but may be alluding to a theme That develops in a variety of places. Mm. And so, for example, and and another thing that we want to take into account here, and this would be another element of historical context, is that in the first century, the Old Testament was generally referred to by Jews as the Tanakh. Uh, It's an acronym for Torah, which means law, Nevi'im, which means prophets and ketuvim, which means writings. And the Torah is the Pentateuch. The, and then the, the prophets section is a little bit different from our what we consider the prophets. The prophets section in the in the Hebrew, uh, in the Jewish Old Testament, is considered Joshua, Judges, Samuel, King, and Kings, and then those books that we consider prophets. And so if you begin to look at, at those texts, not only what we consider the prophetic books, but also those historical books, and you begin to realize, and I think Matthew himself gives us uh, some aid here uh, further on in chapter 4, verses uh, 12 through 16. I I won't take the time here to read it, but that he directs us there uh, to uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and to... The beginning of the deliverance of the people coming from the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But if you look at Second Kings 15, uh, we get the account of the beginning of the exile of the northern kingdom. And where the exile of the northern kingdom begins is in the land of Naphtali, Zebulun, which is the area where Nazareth is located, and so uh, I think the 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 theological idea then that Isaiah picks up on from that is that where that uh, destruction, if you will, that exile of the northern kingdom began, and it was really the beginning of the end for the whole uh, for the whole nation. Uh, it took a hundred and thirty years to finally work out for the southern kingdom, but. Uh, that whole dissolution of the nation of Israel began with that area being taken into exile, people from that area being taken into exile. And then uh, what Isaiah is saying, and what Matthew, I think, is alluding to here, he will be called a Nazarene, is that the light will do- the, the very place where the darkness of the night of exile and destruction began. Is precisely the place where the light for the new deliverance and the new exodus will spring forth.
0: That's very interesting, and and, and as you were as you were going through that, you know, it's obviously I realize that the listeners, you know, they could be driving, they could be doing whatever, and they don't have their Bibles in front of them. But take note of these things because what I think you see Dr. Shaw doing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is he's he's actually pulling in. Um, not just necessarily an interpretive process, though that's there, but there's a biblical theological process that's being worked out through this entire thing, and, and you know, I was commenting to our, our new um, professor, Dr. Morales, recently that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm 49 years old, and I grew up in the systematic theological world of grammatical, historical interpretation. You know, when you come in with biblical theology, I get a little squeamish because it almost gets dangerously close in my mind to allegory. I realize it's not. But how much does biblical theological um, interpretation play into some of these, as it were, difficult texts in the New Testament that try to unpack New Old Testament ideas? I think it plays a, a, a great deal into it.
1: Uh, we we tend in our modern evangelical context we tend to think in of Bible passages as discrete units um yeah great uh, so you know many many christians uh are raised for example on the uh, as christians they become christians perhaps in college or in the military and they get involved with a group like navigators or with campus crusade and navigators has this topical memory system where you memorize a lot of scripture but it's all sort of discrete verses and I, i i think while it's good to memorize scripture and and that's i i'm not knocking the program i think part of the difficulty is that those things don't get tied together and what but what we have in the old testament is the you know, beginning in genesis god is building a people he's telling a story he is building themes He's illustrating things with uh, and so when we look back at it from the New Testament perspective what we want to look at is okay how are these uh, uh, how are these things how do we see these things developing uh, Voss in his uh, volume on biblical theology likens it to the growth of a tree mm-hmm. that the uh, that the whole oak if you will is in that acorn um, but the the uh, but in seed form and so what i I think often what the new testament authors are doing is teaching us how to read the old testament teaching us how to see these themes being developed and how the various elements and how the various historical eras in the old testament uh build up on these themes and interlock together to uh to not only build up the themes but to uh to branch out and to and to flesh out some of this
0: material, in, in the same sense. Then it, I grew up again in, in in sort of the the versified era of the Bible. You know, in other words, uh, it, I have a verse and that settles it because I have this verse, right? Yeah. But it, it oftentimes it's and I know you've experienced this, I'm sure, um, where the verse is just wrenched completely out of its, con- its its immediate context. But then, even in this subject, we really have to put it in its bigger picture, the story of the unfolding drama mm-hmm. of the Old Testament. And so you're, you're suggesting, I think, through this grammatical, historical, interpretive process, or theological process, um, the grammatical, historical, theological, interpretive process, um, that we need to keep the big picture always in check and view as we're looking at the New Testament use of the Old Testament. So really the New Testament is giving us clues, as it were, to what the Old Testament is really doing. Yeah. is that is that an accurate yeah, it,
1: way of putting it? Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. It, it's, um, you know, it, it it's it, I suppose in in some sense it would be like giving a copy for for many people picking up the Old Testament is a little bit like giving a copy of Pilgrim's Progress to someone who knows nothing about the Christian faith. Mm-hmm knows nothing about Christian theology, knows nothing about allegory, uh, but simply takes it, if you will, at face value as a story. And I, I, I think in some sense, in, at least at some level, it, Bunyan was a good enough writer that it, it works as just that. But if you have any understanding of Christian theology, of Christian experience of the Bible, that opens up. The fullness of what Bunyan is doing in that uh, in that story. And it's, I think it's much the same way that with the Old Testament, we can read it and 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 frankly, there are lot, there are big portions of the Old Testament that seem to be entirely unrelated uh to the Christian life right? you know the sacrificial portions of leviticus or the the, the, gene- the extensive genealogies and chronicles yeah or the uh the uh, uh the the numbers in numbers yeah, uh, yeah. you know these these things don't seem to have much relation but but they're again you know what 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 is god doing he's building a people he's but he's not just building a people he is uh, the people are for a purpose. They, uh, the 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 people or the nation of Israel is not created for its sake alone, uh, uh, or for its benefit alone, if you will. But it is from that nation that the Messiah is to come, and the Messiah then is the Savior, not just of Israel, but of all of the nations. Uh, and and if we keep that kind of thing in mind as we're reading, then we begin to understand why Jerusalem in the Old Testament doesn't always mean just that city in Palestine, Sure, sure. and why Zion in the Old Testament doesn't always just refer to that hill in the city of Jerusalem.
0: It reminds me of the psalm where it says that a river runs through the city, and it— there is no river. There's no river that in runs Jerusalem. through Jerusalem. So, right. so what is it referring to? Yeah. And I mean, this is all, I mean, it, 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 to me it's energizing to think this way because, as I said earlier, I, I didn't grow up in this at all. I grew up in, in more of this versified approach to the Bible. Um, and so this is, for me in some sense, even four years after, four years into seminary um, – hopefully not many more years to go, <laughs> but anyway, it, it, it's, it's so exciting, because when you see the, Old, the New Testament try to um, do this, I mean, but I gotta tell you, it sounds like a lot of work for the interpreter. Uh, you know, it's just not so cut and dry, you know, just, oh, well, there's the cross reference, he's obviously talking about Isaiah 714, done, I get it. Um, you go and you read it, and you go. I don't get it. Why is he using that? And mm-hmm. so it takes some effort on this side of the line because we're trying to deal with texts that were written so long ago and trying to get inside the head of Matthew or Paul. Yeah. Um, in these areas, but it, but it, at the end of the day, you know, if our presupposition is correct, then we got to work at it and and try to uh, flesh those things out. I do want to ask you. Um, you know, we talked about Matthew, and um, I know in the class you. I think you start there, mm-hmm. um, but, you, but it's not the only place um, sure. that are problematic. And before we even look at one more, just in, in, because of time, I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on a second one, but I do want to ask this question you, you may or may not know the answer to. Um, how many, for lack of a better word, questionable uses of the Old Testament are in the New that the, the scholars tend to tend to fixate on?
1: Um. I'd say there's probably about half a dozen passages in the New Testament that scholars fixate on. <coughs> Excuse me.
0: Those of you on um, Facebook know. The,
1: um, uh, you know, the Hosea 11 uh, citation in Matthew 2 would be one of those. Uh, there's a citation of Deuteronomy 30 in Romans 10 that gets mm-hmm. a lot of discussion. Um, Oh, you know, again, it, um, the citation of Psalm 68 in Ephesians 4, uh, partly because uh, in Psalm 68 it says he received gifts among men, and in Ephesians 4 Paul cites it as he gave gifts to men, Um and there's probably, like I say, probably three or four others. But, I, you know, 95 percent of the New Testament citations of Old Testament texts are entirely unproblematic. Yep. Uh, they're straightforward. There, you look at the verse in Matthew. You go back and look at it in Isaiah, and you say, "Oh yeah, I get it." Uh, and it, but it's these other ones that uh, you know that this five percent. Uh, that make us uh, stretch our minds, as it were, and, and we have to go back. And and that's one of the uses uh, – one of the books I mentioned earlier was the the Beale and Carson volume con- and commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. That's where a volume like that uh, comes in very handy because the men that did these commentaries uh, have studied this material for years. Uh, if they don't have a solution, they'll give you three or four possible mm-hmm. explanations. And yep. so – uh, recognizing that not all scholars are going to see these things the same, uh, yet again, it's a uh, it's a great resource for that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and 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 like I said, it's an intriguing it's an intriguing approach to an issue that I didn't really think was an issue until like in the seminary. Maybe that's a maybe that's a maybe that's a statement about not going to seminary. It really isn't, but um, but it's important. I mean, if we're going to understand God's word, and it's there for us to understand. Um, and if the Spirit illumines our minds to these matters, then we need to work at these things. And, and God has thankfully given us men in the Church and um, professors and who help us understand these things. And I guess for me, because I'm just a very linear, I have a, a very simple mind, I'm not a brainiac by any means, so I'll never be a scholar, but I mean, for me, it would be helpful if I had sort of a bullet point way of, dealing with some of these things, mm-hmm. and and do you have, I, I mean, I know that's very simplistic, yeah. but is there a simple way for the average listener out there who says, you know, I, I, I read that passage in Ephesians 4, and I did look at Psalm 68, and I was con- so confused, I didn't know what to do. And they don't have the grammatical skills, yeah. you know, they don't have the Hebrew background to, mm-hmm. to unravel this, they don't, I mean, maybe they can look at Beale's commentary, and, and maybe that would suffice, I don't know, um, but maybe they want to have an, a ready, a a ready way of, of 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 getting at some level, getting to the root of it. Yeah. Is there a, is there a ready way? Um, I I think there's a uh,
1: I think there's a simple way, or mm. perhaps a straightforward way, but it's not an easy way. Yep. yep. Uh, in other words, one of the things that you're going to want the the first thing that you want to do if you've got. Uh, You know, New Testament, uh, quoting the Old Testament, is you look at the Old Testament passage. And the first thing you want to do is not just look at the Old Testament verse, the very verse that's cited, but look at the whole chapter, look at the whole section. Um, You know, so, for example, uh, Ephesians 4, Paul's citation of Psalm 68. Don't just go look at Psalm 68, 18, or whatever it is. Read the whole psalm. Start thinking about that verse in the context of the whole psalm. And then, moving from there, you want to think about where does this fit in the larger context of the theological development uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, (coughs) Okay. You know, one thing that's very helpful that we probably don't make proper use of is the cross-references in in Bibles that have cross-reference systems. So that if you go back, again, just using Ephesians 4, takes us to Psalm 68. Psalm 68 takes us back to Numbers 10. Mm -hmm. And Numbers 10, at the end of Numbers 10, we find out that when the – Israelites leave Sinai every time the cloud lifted up from above the ark, that meant the Israelites were supposed to move out. And what Moses would do when the cloud lifted up, and it was obvious that people were supposed to start move, moving, Moses would say, Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. And That's how Psalm 68 opens, Mm. and so Psalm 68 is clearly building on Numbers 10, Uh, and Numbers 10 then, what's Israel doing when they're leaving Sinai? They're headed to the promised land. Now, that ties in also, and I think if you look at your Psalm 68 references, it may lead you here, it may not, but I think it does, to Exodus 15, which is the song that the, that the Israelites sing after they watch the, uh, the waves come back and wipe out the Egyptians. Well, that song that, song that they sing takes them from Egypt to the Promised Land. And so Numbers is building on that theme of going from Sinai to the – they've been delivered from Egypt, they go to Sinai, they go from Sinai to the promised land. And Psalm 68, uh, a psalm of David, takes them not just to the promised land but to Zion, now where now the, the city of God. And then the second half of Psalm 68 takes it from Zion to the world. So you move from Egypt to Sinai to Zion to the world, and that's the New Testament. There, where now the good news, the people of God are an army that spreads out throughout the whole world, and uh, and God equips His people for that task. And that's where then Paul is picking up on that idea that the gifts that God that uh, that God receives from men are then used given to men for the carrying on of that gospel work.
0: So what you just heard, then, is a a good example of how, you know, you don't have to have a a good working understanding of reading Hebrew, right, but but utilizing the cross-references. And since you mentioned that, just out of curiosity, do you have a favorite cross-referencing system? Um, I mean, I know Dr. Piper, when I asked that question, it sounds kind of vague, ambiguous. Um, Dr. Piper says the New American Standard cross-references are the best. Yeah. Well, that's his opinion, of course, but... Well, I,
1: my impression is that any of the modern translations that have a cross-referencing system, those cross-referencing systems are pretty much standardized by now, so that if I, I've got an ESV with cross-references sitting in front of me, my guess is that if I took that and looked at uh, Dr. Piper's uh, numeric standard, it's right. pretty much the same list.
0: Yep. You know, I know. There's the treasury scripture knowledge that is very extensive, and um, I found it helpful. Sometimes it's a little too much, and you get just you're constantly flipping all over the place, really not getting to the end of the, anything. But um, but yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great resource for people to use, and, and most I think do do that at some level. But to understand why you're doing it, trying to get to the root of those those various themes that are being presented, and why then the New Testament is doing what it's doing, mm-hmm. and and always understanding that at the end of the day, it's not being misused (laughs) right it's just if if we're not understanding it's it's a problem with us not a problem with the spirit it's not a problem with the text it's a problem with us and and um but but utilizing that process but you saw you just saw how dr shaw explained it i know it was quick and you may have to rewind and listen to it again but but you see how the it it was developed it wasn't just jump back to psalm 68 i don't get it paul doesn't make any sense i'm confused and give up yeah but but constantly looking deeper yeah, I, I,
1: I think uh, I I think something to to mention here is that you know uh, and our confession makes it clear that the that the primary message of the scripture is clear. Yep. <coughs> and relatively easy for even the unlearned to pick up, but that doesn't mean that everything is equally clear. And and again, referencing the uh, first uh, chapter of the Confession, it says, um, All things in Scripture, this is paragraph 7, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of, of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. In other words, the basic message of the Bible, salvation by faith alone through Christ alone, is sufficiently clear that a careful, attentive reading of the Bible is going to give you that knowledge. That doesn't mean that everything in the Scripture is equally clear. And so there are difficult passages, passages that are hard to understand. Um, passages where uh, if you consult, for example, an old work like uh, Haley's uh, alleged discrepancies of the Bible, uh, you know, uh, people uh, will say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions, as if nobody ever thought about that before. Uh, (laughs) Haley was a 19th century guy who put uh, together a list of these alleged discrepancies and contradictions, and he gives you... Uh, reasonable explanations for all of them in some cases he may give you three four or five reasonable explanations but uh again that's a uh, just recognize that uh not everything's not everything's crystal clear some things just require hard work and and hard thought uh to 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 really uh, uh and to really understand yep. um but there's a uh i think it was a English poet A. E. Hausman uh, said something to the effect of, uh, uh, three minutes thought would have sufficed to find it out, but uh, thought is hard, and three minutes is a long time." Uh, you know, we we want we, we live in the instant age. We yeah. want it instantly, yeah. and uh, right. sometimes the sometimes the scriptures doesn't. You know the scriptures are sometimes like a mine. Uh, you know, if you're mining for gold, it's just not going to pop out of the ground at you. You got to dig for it.
0: would Be nice if it did.
1: Yeah, it would be, but it doesn't.
0: Well, it, you know, in, 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 it's interesting. You brought up the, 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 the issue of contradictions, and this is a little bit of field, for, uh, a little bit off the track of what we're talking about, but. Just by way of information and help, maybe help be a little encouraging for listeners too. I, I've had experiences with people who, you know, hadn't been to seminary. They, they can't read Greek and Hebrew, and, and they, they're sometimes frustrated by that, but they don't feel like they really understand the Bible as well as they can. Trust me, you can. Okay. Um, I've often referred to reading the Bible in Greek and Hebrew as seeing a TV program in color as opposed to black and white. You still see the plot. When you read it in English, you, you, you get it, you know what's going on. Greek and Hebrew just adds flavor, color to things that you may have missed in the English translations. But oftentimes you'll be having conversations with your friends, talking to them about the gospel, sharing the gospel with them, talking about the Bible, and they'll present some of these alleged contradictions, and you don't have an answer. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean, because you don't have an answer, that they're right. Yeah. It just means you don't know. Right. And so go find out. I mean, that's the best thing to do. And don't be discouraged by those realities. It's going to happen. You're going to get naysayers that are always going to have challenges, but it doesn't mean they're right. It just means you don't know. And so say that I don't know, and and but I'll find out. Yeah. And and do that. So speaking of finding out, as we kind of wrap this up, and you know, and I wish I had taken the whole class now, but I'll get my chance hopefully <laughs> um, next uh, in the fall. But um, resources. I, For the average layperson out there who's interested in further understanding of these things, what would you recommend? You've mentioned the Beal commentary, which I personally own, too. It is big, um, but it is helpful. I've consulted it many times in sermon preparation on various things that have caused me some, you know, uh, I've been perplexed over, and it's been helpful. But others. Oh, boy. Um well stump the professor this they're, is they're, a m- there's
1: a there's a smaller book by g k Beale called handbook on the New Testament use of the old testament yep. uh, and uh the first couple of chapters of that particularly uh he uh, he talks about um uh well in chapter four primary ways the New Testament uses the old testament so you know, that that's a nice, pretty accessible, straightforward discussion to recognize that the New Testament authors are not using the Old Testament in one particular way all the time, that there's a range of ways that they make use uh, of the Old Testament. Um, I, I think also uh, some of the older commentaries, and by this, you know, we we live in an age of a wealth of resources where you can read Calvin's commentaries free online. You can read Matthew Henry free online. Um, and, um, a lot, a lot of times these older commentators will discuss these issues and point out, uh, some of these kinds of things. So, uh, that would be another resource to make use of. Um, you know, um, Ask your pastor. Uh, if your pastor doesn't know, he may at least be able to uh, uh, to look it up and get back to
0: you. Yeah, he might be able to write his professor at <laughs> seminary and ask them because. And and, and, and I'm, I mean, it's, in the sense, I'm joking, but that happens. Yeah, um, you know, I've talked with our New Testament professor here, Doctor Dyer, and he's mentioned that that it, it, from on occasion, a pastor, a graduate of the school, will write him on a question because of a question that they're not sure the answer to, but um, but they ought to get the answer for you one way or the other. But they can write their professor. <laughs> I mean,
1: uh, sometimes study Bibles uh, help, uh, although um, you know it it just depends uh, on the study Bible. Uh, some of them are more helpful than others. Um. But again, it's the kind of thing where, uh, particularly with the difficult passages, it's uh, it's not a five-minute solution. Uh, yeah. It's not a it's not a quickie answer. Um, you know, and the fact of the matter is, sometimes you can find. Yeah, uh, you know, Google is a great resource. Just type your question into Google and see what
0: comes up. Yeah, but just be careful. Yeah. I mean there there are You're discerning. <laughs> <laughs> you can get some really wacky things out of that. But uh yeah, sure. Um I've done it. I mean uh, there are times when I just can't think of some an answer uh, or I mean yeah, I've done it first. Just for, Google it. I know the verse but I don't know the I don't know where it is. I don't know the reference, but I know the words in the verse and I just type it in. It's like, well lo and behold, there it is. Yeah. You know, it's very helpful. It's uh-huh. a, it's quick and it's and it is helpful. But it is an important subject. Um if we're going to rightly divide God's Word and, and use it, um, uh, you, know, I, you know, I'm you know, i in seminary because I want to preach God's Word, and, and I can't just skip over these texts because I can't deal with them. Uh, I don't know what to say. I've got to yeah. get to the root of it. And and for many pastors and in that situation, these are resources that can be used and employed to try to resolve these things, and I can give you Dr. Shaw's email address, and you can write him if you really don't know the answer, um, and, and maybe he'll help you with it. But I say that tongue-in-cheek, okay. of course, but um, he gets enough email, I'm sure. But, you know, it's just a reality that it is God's Word, and we do need to understand yeah. it. There's there's one other resource that I would
1: recommend, and that is uh, Stuart Robinson, who was a Presbyterian pastor in the 19th century, uh, did a series of lectures uh I think this was a, uh, a Sunday evening series that he did for his people, and it was his main goal was to try to teach his people how to read the Bible. But it's called Discourses of Redemption, mm-hmm. and these have recently been reprinted. And I think it's just a marvelous treatment of uh, you know taking you from the very beginning of the Bible, working it working through to the end, and just showing you. How that acorn develops into an oak tree.
0: Yeah, it's a great story, and when you read the Bible that way, you you well, you've you've written about this on your blog. And in, in fact, yeah. um, you read the Bible that way. It just it, it, sometimes we get lost in the details yeah. and we miss the big picture. Yeah, and Robinson does a great job of giving the big picture in that yeah. book. It's great stuff. I mentioned your blog. Why don't you tell your listen, tell the tell your listeners tell the listeners um, you write occasionally there and. Um, Actually, you write more than a, you write enough. Anyway, yeah. why don't you tell them? The, uh, GPTS Rabbi. That's R A B B I
1: dot blogspot dot com.
0: And, and and I gotta ask. I mean, I know that I know what Doctor how Doctor Piper call, what he calls you around the halls. But it is that the reason that's named that? Yep, because he calls you Rabbi. Yeah. And so, how did that name actually? Really, that how started that, before Doctor Piper got here. Oh,
1: really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. good. Do tell. Well, I I don't remember where it started. I just know that uh, I was getting called Rabbi before Doctor uh, Piper got. Maybe I something to do with I was the Hebrew guy. He's
0: the Hebrew guy. Yeah. And uh, but yeah. So well, w- w- any final words or comments? I mean, it's it's a, a big subject for an hour. Obviously, yeah. I mean, you take thirteen weeks to teach the students here to to systematically deal with these things and yeah. and work through the issues that are that come out of it. And, um, and we're going to try to knock it off in an hour. Obviously, yeah. we're not going to accomplish that but at least be familiar with it anything you know the final to kind of wrap it up um yeah i i think
1: one final thing be patient with the bible um uh if you don't you know let, let's say you've taken the steps that i've recommended you've 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 followed your cross references you looked at the old testament passage you looked at it in its context both the the immediate literary context, the larger historical context, you've tried to look at it in the theological context and you're still not seeing it. Well, you no, know, set it aside, leave it for a while, come back to it a year or two later. Um, you know, but keep reading the Bible, keep praying, uh, keep listening to your pastor preach the word and you'll be surprised. You go back a couple of years later and go through that same process. And you know, I think, Wow, why didn't I see that before? <laughs> right, and because you know, as, as we make use of the means of grace, we grow in grace, we grow in our understanding, and uh, and so some sometimes this just kind, of, you know, um, like like Bill said at the beginning of the program, I've been teaching here for twenty five years, so yeah, you know, some this stuff, a lot of this stuff, I didn't learn overnight. I've been working on it for decades. Yep, so.
0: Yeah, rely on the people that have gone before you too. Nothing. There's yeah. no harm in that, and yeah. um, be discerning, be wise. But at the, you know, at the same time, recognize there are people out there that know more than you. Um, I'm, I'm at Summoner because there are people that know more than me, and I hope they teach me at least a little bit of that um, as as you go through it. And but there are people that do know more, and there will always be people that know more than you do. And and I think that's great counsel. Um, be patient. Um, some of these things are difficult, and, and, but as you're patient, wait, and we've all had that experience. We read a verse when we were a kid, or read a verse when we were a teenager, and we don't get it, and then all of a sudden, let the lights go on. Well, the verse yeah. didn't change. Yeah. you know, God didn't give new revelation to it. All yeah. of a sudden, you've been instructed more. Other information has been working yeah. on your mind to help you further understand that. Yeah. And that's great, great counsel for all of us as we consider our reading of the Bible, prayerfully considering these matters. Well, Dr. Shaw, it's been great. Again, I I wish I'd would been through the whole 13 weeks, but uh, I'll get my chance. If if you're going to teach it again, I'll get my chance. But this is kind of a snapshot for those listening who may be toying with the idea of going to seminary, maybe considering it. Um, One of the things I've tried to do, I'm trying to do this year on the podcast is is something that I I think I failed to do earlier on, was that to involve the faculty of the school more in their field that they teach here. Not not just to promote the seminary. Obviously, the podcast promotes the seminary. Okay. Well, I I, I read an art, I read a blog that kind of said you know kind of made that reference about the podcast. Well, uh, okay, you're right. It, the podcast is designed to promote the seminary. It's but it's not just doing that. We're trying to be informative, helpful, both in the theological world as well as the practical Christian living world. And so this is kind of a, a, a in a sense a, just a teaser as what you would get. If you were to go here to seminary um, on these kinds of subjects, I mean, you would be trained and taught to think through these things carefully. And for men who have done it for 25 years. And so, avail yourself of those resources. If you are thinking about seminary, again, you know, we're here, we're available. You can write us at info at gpts.edu. If you want more information, the website's always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, unless, of course, the IT guy falls down on the job and it stops working. But we won't talk about that. But use those resources and and make yourself um, uh, and use them to your benefit. That's what they're there for. Uh, Doctor Shaw has been great. Um, I know you have a class. Speaking of class, you have a class in about twenty five minutes yeah. and um, first year guys. But uh, they're all getting they're all getting baptism by fire. I'm sure <laughs> in 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 the Old Testament intro class. And so, but it's been great to have you on, and I appreciate it. I know you have not been feeling well, so I appreciate your Your um, diligence in this particular subject, one that is very important for us to consider. No problem. Thank you. Coming up on the program, I have no idea. Um, Go to the website. That's the best thing to do. I say that a lot because I don't generally have it in front of me when we're talking. So um, confessingourhope.com, that's where all the information is. Typically, I just updated everything over the weekend, uh, so it's up to date again, but I'm sure I'll get behind over the next few days. But uh, please be patient with me. But go to the website and um, avail yourself of that resource as much as you're able. And until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.